Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and there are just 12 days to go, hopefully. <laughs> I say that because we don't know how President Trump will handle, or Biden, frankly, uh, the results and how the streets will look. So Trump and Biden meet tonight for the last time before the polls officially close. Trump tried to break Biden in their first encounter, and it blew up on him. He tried to sabotage and take control of the conversation. Will we see a different Trump tonight? Will it matter? Let's take a moment to look at where things stand right now. Our PTSD, our collective PTSD from 2016, makes it very hard to see what is at happening at this very moment uh, right now compared to a very different year. Let's start with a basic point. The lesson of 2016 is a good one. Don't ease off until the last ballot is counted and always visit Wisconsin. But the bigger picture here is that this is not 2016. On this day in 2016, Hillary Clinton led Donald Trump in the national polling 45.5% to 39.2%. Today, in the same national polling, Average, kept by 538.com, Joe Biden leads Donald Trump 52.2% to 42.1%. So to say this another way, Biden is ahead of Trump by, on average, 10 points. Hillary led Trump on this day in 2016 on average of six points. Even more important, Hillary Clinton never, ever got over 50% support in any national poll. Biden has been steadily at 50% since June and edge up to 52 in the last few weeks after Trump's wacky debate performance and his, of course, White House COVID drama. Even if Hillary was, quote, ahead in 2016, Clinton was never in control. She slipped a bit in the final days in the polls and the Electoral College did the rest. And of course, she never opened offices in Wisconsin. There was Comey. She ignored working people, yada, yada, yada. We know we've been talking about this for the last four years. But could it happen again? Sure, it could. But it would take something way more dramatic than all the drama we've already seen this year and last election, all of which has had very little effect on the overall shape of this race. And honestly, doesn't that make sense? Donald Trump was never popular as, as popular as he was then. He lost the national election by 3 million votes and only won the Electoral College by a total of 70,000 very well-placed votes in key states. In politics, it is sometimes better to be lucky than smart. Trump had just spent four years making people regret their vote. That's what's been going on in the last four years. He's only lost support. His support among seniors is down. His support among women is down. And he really didn't have any room there for a decline, as we know. Voters do not approve of the job he has done as president. That is the bottom line. That is what the numbers show across the board. Within a month of taking office, his disapproval shot over 50% disapproval and has basically been there his entire term. At times, it was disastrously bad. 58% disapproval in December of 2017. 58%. At one point earlier this year, in one survey, he clawed back to 49.5% disapproval. And then his disapproval started climbing again. Today, 53% of voters disapprove of the job he has done. 45% approve. That's another way of saying it. The only president re-elected 
despite job approval underwater like this in his last years was Harry Truman, the only president. The data is, is all running in the same direction. Even in strong red states, Trump is running behind his vote total in 2016. Take West Virginia. He won 69% of the vote in 2016, but is only polling at 60% right now. A nine-point drop in a place people still support him, and he's still going to win West Virginia. The point is, the trend is everywhere, and unlikely to be polling errors on voters lying to pollsters. Joe Biden is running ahead of where Hillary Clinton was at this time four years ago, and Donald Trump is running behind Donald Trump. Again, he's only lost support across the board. You can see this clearly in several swing states. In 2016, Trump won four crucial states with between 47 and 49 percent of the vote. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Wisconsin. In each of these states, Trump is polling four points lower than his vote in 2016. Will that be enough to flip those four states and defeat Trump? If Biden and his campaign do their job for the next 12 days, yes, it is. But then again, this is why the Republicans are so focused on voter suppression. It seems to be their only trick at this point. And it is also why Trump is so unfocused and all over the place with his tactics. He doesn't know what's going to work, and he hopes something will stick. Of course, something could stick, which is why we cannot take anything for granted and rely solely on the genius Biden campaign. Because when you are taking on cheaters, you don't take anything for granted. We have a brilliant show today. Uh, Dreisen Heath is here to explain the argument that defunding the police is a reparations issue. Then later, we will predict what will happen with the debate with Representative Rab, Rep Rab, and Run Chowdhury, an old friend. But first, from the top of my newsfeed, both Republicans and Democrats are drawing on sinophobic rhetoric to bloat the Pentagon budget. This is happening through Congress's efforts to ramp up the National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA, for 2021. On July 23rd, the Senate voted in favor of a plan that earmarks $6 billion to the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which is intended to counter the Chinese Communist Party's influence in the Pacific region and to build up American allies there. A similar plan was passed in the House, but anti-war advocates point out that the lack of justification for these efforts is a problem. Why is money being spent to fuel another anti-communist conflict when Americans need affordable housing, single-payer health care, and a clean energy infrastructure right now? Why are they acting on that when we have a crisis at home? On Wednesday, election officials sounded the alarm of Russian and Iranian interference in the American presidential election. Now the Iranian government is rejecting, shocker, this claim outright. A recent barrage of emails sent to Democratic voters, apparently from an alt-right hate group, you know, the alt-right hate group, I should say, the Proud Boys, has been blamed on Iranian interference. But Alariza Mir Yousefi, a spokesperson for the Iranian government, reminded us that anybody is likely to meddle in an election. If, if anybody, it is the United States. She said, quote, Unlike the U.S., Iran does not interfere in other countries' elections. 
The world has been witnessing the U.S.'s own desperate public attempts to question the outcome of its own elections at the highest level. That's what's been going on the last few years. Okay, I'm just going to go out there and say they all met on elections. That's my... U.S., everybody else, they're all doing it for their own interests. And everybody's just out there to protect their own interests. But that's for another day. Our favorite Prager University videos have been used as a part of official class curriculum at a public school in Ohio. A 10th grade history class was assigned a set of videos for viewing material, including, quote, build the wall, why the right was right, and the left ruins everything. Prager University has fashioned, fashioned itself, fashioned, I say, as an educational resource, building study guide for educators around its conservative material. You gotta check out the Gravel Institute. This is bonkers, and I truly believe there should be a federal investigation of this because this is what the Republicans did to the left, the Christian right, 20, 30 years ago in taking uh, evolution out of classroom materials in public schools. I think it's time that we start to fight back. All right, we will be back with Dreisen Heath, and later we're gonna be talking about the debate. Dryzen Heath, and I hope I'm saying your name right, uh, so please correct me if so, is an assistant researcher at Human Rights Watch and the author of an article in The Nation called Defunding the Police is a Reparations Issue. Dryzen, thank you so much. Am I saying your name right? Dryzen. Dryzen, I apologize. I apologize. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for, for putting this work out. Um, I think it's an important uh, piece of commentary connecting two specific issues uh, that a lot of folks have been talking about in the last, especially in the elections, uh, since reparations was put on the table. Um, so what what inspired you to write this piece? Well, what inspired me to write this piece is the uh, racial injustice crisis that we're in right now. Um, it is a continued crisis, but one that has exploded over the Last year and um, caused, you know, uh, organized protests throughout the summer, ongoing protests, even though uh, the media may not <laughs> be covering it anymore and has moved on to their news cycles. But um, there, there's a clear converging um, of issues here. Um, one, people are suffering incredibly uh, hard, disproportionately black and brown and native people. Uh, from COVID-19, right. uh, you have the right. legacy of enslavement that has caused uh, some of these additional conditions in addition to, and when I say conditions, I mean economic and social conditions like lack of access to housing, lack of access to um, employment opportunities, education, healthcare, um, key human rights uh, that people do not have equal access to. Um, and so we're really seeing a moment where uh, folks are galvanized uh, around these specific uh, calls and, and solutions for a better future towards justice. You see, you work in human rights, and I, I think, especially from this perspective, you, you link it to how the UN uh, usually uh, will get involved in other areas of the country, of the world with conflict. I mean, there's there's most famously South Africa reparations, but. Um, that seems to be so disconnected from this conversation in the United States 
I mean, I, I will just talk about like a personal experience. I was driving down the street today and I saw a slew of Trump trucks with um, the, uh, the Blue Lives Matter, like very large um, flags. And it, what clicked for me in pre preparing for this interview was it's become so partisan and it's really the conversation has been so disconnected from like human rights, which is like basic human rights that the whole world, um, you know, democratic world, quote unquote, uh, should be is probably seeing it through the lens of. But for some reason, even the media, it's still seen as like this partisan thing. I mean, how, how right. do you human yeah, rights are not partisan? No, absolutely. Um, human rights are not partisan. Uh, they are given to, to everyone uh, within the U.S. jurisdiction. Um, and therefore, uh, they should apply to everyone equally. Uh, it's not a matter of, of party here. It's a matter of person um, and recognizing people's humanity. Uh, and that means uh, honoring and respecting people's right to housing, people's right to food, people's right to health. Uh, people's right to safety and security. Uh, people don't feel safe in the U.S. Uh, they don't feel secure, whether that's food insecurity or whether that's thinking that you're going to walk out the door and be killed by police or by the coronavirus. Uh, you know, it really boils down to people just really understanding that, you know, a, a lot of the times in, in our U.S. discourse, it's more so people focus or, or articulate that these are civil rights. Um, or right, or right. people or people just quite frankly, you know, know that they don't have food on the table and all they can say is they're hungry, um, but may not connect that to the right to, to the fact that they have a right to not be hungry. Um, and so really making, you know, part of what we do at Human Rights Watch is really hammer that home is that it really is, you know, your civil rights wouldn't exist without your human rights and being able to connect those uh, to everyday issues that we all deal with and that we all need to survive. You said in your piece, and I'm quoting you, um, that institutional reform is vital to preventing future acts of political violence. The UN uh, guidelines for restoring rights in post-conflict countries, an operational framework, framework for institutional reform suggests, quote, effective reform efforts might also have to review the functioning of an entire public sector and considering merging, disbanding, or creating public institutions. Uh, I mean, immediately we think of, of defunding the police. So, so that was your connection. Um, how, do we, how do we transform this argument around defunding the police to that? To, first off, like, folks aren't even on board with reparations on, on the left right now. And, you know, clearly, like, it made a big, a lot of progress uh, as it reached the debate stage of the presidential primaries, which was profound. But there's a lot of work to go. At the same time, Democrats, you know, they might be more critical of the police and be calling for reform. But at the end of the day, the buck stops at, like, these these mayors who are still beholden to police unions. Um, so how do we bridge that gap, but also do in connection with with these two issues yeah i mean to your point about who's beholden to who i mean all political leaders uh, have have an impact and have a role in creating a safe uh public society and uh we've seen at the federal state and local level increases in funding for police 
while other uh, key social services, key social support programs, again, healthcare, um, access to food systems are are effectively being defunded in some areas. Uh, reprogramming of funds uh, are not going to what people actually need day to day. They're going to uh, uh, a system that perpetuates, that meets harm with more harm uh, and perpetuates inequality and poverty further by responding to crises like homelessness, um, to responding to people with mental health crises um, that really just, you know, just need a mental health responder, someone who has the expertise to, to diffuse the situation, not to be met with a gun or other violent forces. Um, you know, it's not just uh, people getting killed. It's also people uh, potentially uh, being killed with less lethal uses of force, like tasers, like, um, and, and, and dog bites and uh, other forms of uh, violent tools. Um, so, you know, really boiling down to we're in this space where reparations, as you said, uh, has reached the debate stage, but it's also had enormous support within the Congress itself um, and has come a long way. Uh, a bill uh, called H.R. 40 uh, a, that would establish a commission to investigate the, the role, uh, the institution of slavery and its subsequent effects like segregation and other uh, forms of violence, race massacres, racial terror lynchings, but also the ongoing racial discrimination that people are experiencing today. Uh, that has gained unprecedented support. And that's, that's a telltale sign of where we are right now. Um, ultimately, you know, it's not a, ultimately, it's not a Democrat or Republican problem because uh, all parties have uh, called for increases in police funding. And what we really need to do, there's been bold solutions put on the table. And, and while, you know, defund the police may seem like just a protest chant or, um, you know, it's a le legitimate framework, a, a, a ideal, a roadmap to somewhere. Um, a roadmap to where people aren't getting, you know, there's days where police aren't killing people um, and, and where people actually have the everyday resources they need to survive. Um, so really getting uh, leaders, our, our fellow peers to understand that this is a matter of safety. This is a matter of re-envisioning what we think is public safety. Uh, why do we think that police are the default answer when they only have tools, you know, their their whole thing is command and force. Um, that, that is what they are built off of. That's built into the institution. Racial profiling is built into the institution um, from enslavement to present day. Traffic stops, uh, black and brown people are stopped longer or getting killed at a traffic stop for just trying to pull out their ID. So, you know, it, it really is, of needing a vision to reimagine public safety. Um, and Human Rights Watch has actually, you know, put out uh, tons of work on what that would look like, um, reducing the scope and the size of police. So what police are actually responsible for. Um, we know that the policing institution is inherently uh, violent and militaristic. 
that means it's a sy systemic issue, not an individual officer issue. Um, and therefore, th those UN guidelines kind of provide a backdrop as to you may have to think how this public institution is interfacing with the community and what are the other needs that the public is being deprived of because this uh, institution is being funded in a way that's perpetuating more harm. Well, I mean, what's, you hit on this point about how this is an institution, the police, um, set up post-slavery. I mean, in slavery, but it was a different form. But it was formed to control slaves from, from leaving uh, the plantations and, and you know, and more, um, questioning their owners, whatever it is. Um, I think, like, that piece of information to me, when I first learned that a few years ago, I was like, it just shifted the entire, my entire perspective on the police. Yeah. And I've said that a few times, and I've noticed that, like, Democrats are not, a lot of uh, liberals, like, mainstream liberals, are very uncomfortable with that idea. And I, in terms of messaging, like, how do you bridge that gap of folks kind of challenging what they've known their entire lives into realizing this, this force that doesn't treat people outside of black and brown communities basically the same way. Um, I mean, I just, I just think like that's the piece that needs to, if you want to talk about reparations, like there you go. I mean, this is exactly, I mean, there's, there's, there's a pathway right there. I mean, it's just like laid out in history. So, I mean, how do you go about shifting the mindset of even our allies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it. everybody needs more education um, or, around these issues because for so long, our, you know, many of our schools didn't teach us this gro growing up. Um, you know, even our uh, advanced institutions, higher ed uh, institutions, unless you're specializing in specific you know, critical race studies or uh, ethnic studies program, you may not be getting this uh, background information either. Um, and, you know, part of a pathway to justice is, is being truthful and laying out the facts, however uncomfortable they are. Uh, and unfortunately, people have to, you know, give up their comfort uh, for other people's uh, humanity. Um, you know, you have to give a little for the collective to, to get a little bit more. Uh, and, and that's a concept where, you know, if that makes people uncomfortable to connect uh, the history of policing, um, you know, just think about how comfortable, uncomfortable it is for the, the families of victims of police violence uh, when they have to think about the memories of their, you know, dead loved ones, where they keep reliving the experience over viral videos and over non-guilty verdicts. Um, you know, it really, we, we, we tend to shift the discourse off of who is actually impacted and instead get caught up in these kind of semantic battles, uh, but also, kind of neglecting history. And I think it's uh, important to acknowledge because that's the whole reason why, you know, some of these reforms uh, are, are not going to work. Some of these piecemeal reforms that don't that's right. target the system yeah. that's are not right. going to work because you're, you're talking about a systemic issue um, and you're talking about something 
that started with mass racial profiling and surveillance, uh, in addition to surveilling slaves uh, and enslaved people, they also jailed white abolitionists for teaching uh, freed slaves how to read. So everybody was caught up who, who were servicing the freedom um, and, and power and economic power to black people. Um, how can that system evolve into anything good uh, that actually centers the public safety needs of a society? That's right. I mean, it's, it's essentially it was by design and you know, once you realize that this is a this is an institution that from the beginning was there designed to control people, humans that were a commodity. And then once, you know, reformation happened, it was never fully addressed. And now we're sitting in this place, um, you know, the last 150, 200 years of of supposed incremental progress where um, it's just taken new form of control, as, as we know so well. So. I guess, why doesn't the UN ever do it? I mean, I know the US is very involved in the UN. I'm just, this is just more of a, a philosophical perspective. Why doesn't the UN, why don't other countries um, challenge what's happening here? It's just so obvious. I think that there are, you know, examples of where countries have spoken out. I mean, it's also a matter of, each country needs to deal with their own stuff. Um, we often point the finger overseas of, about the worst human rights abuses instead of looking inward, uh, looking at our rates of poverty, looking at our rates of food insecurity, looking at our rates of um, violence against uh, marginalized groups of people. Uh, so really that, that focus also, you know, needs to come internally <laughs> within the U.S., uh, political leaders, you know, there are some that, you know, engage very fully in foreign policy issues, but not in domestic issues that deal with uh, black and brown people, quite frankly, or people of a, um, you know, poor class, uh, because it's not just a racial hi hierarchy, it's a class hierarchy as well. Um, so really, you know, there are there is a broad framework that the UN provides, that a human rights framework provides that's grounded in international human rights law. We, the US is, you know, has ratified into some of those treaties and therefore should enforce them. Uh, there have been, you know, independent experts within the international community that call for certain uh, you know, actions to take place, call for things uh, to end, call for poverty to be addressed, uh, which is often underlying to a lot of our social issues. And the U.S. needs to take note of that and actually um, actually implement those recommendations and, and work on them in a meaningful way that targets the systemic nature of these problems and not in these batches because people's lives day to day matter on those, you know, so-called reforms. Uh, and if you're not looking at the institution itself with the framework that's provided, um, it's not like we're, we're uh, uh, distant or, um, you know, um, unfamiliar with human rights and the concept of human rights. We just struggle with enforcing and recognizing that for some people in the U.S. That's right. So um, in terms of, of, of reparations, uh, I, I'm, I'm really glad that you bring up 
that because there are plenty of Democrats, including um, African-American Democrats I know that are in office that are pushing for police reform bills that really don't attack and combat the systemic issues. Like you said, it's 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 window dressing. It's, you know, having one foot in the movement, one foot out of the movement and, and not having to take on um, the police unions, which, are, of course, are very, very powerful. So how, what would a, a proper reparations uh, plan look like that included defunding the police in the way that attacked attacks um, the systemic problems? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, I mean, again, back to the, the bill that I alluded to earlier, uh, the commission to uh, establishing a commission to investigate slavery and its subsequent impacts, including the ongoing impacts that are affecting uh, Black Black people today and uh, descendants of enslaved Africans in the U.S. This is a holistic bill that would look at all of kind of these societal issues and determine, come up with specific proposals and determine what is the best remedy. Now we have precedent for this. Uh, we, we've done it before. And, and so we shouldn't be shy in embarking on the situation again. It's been, it's been difficult in, in past experiences like uh, reparations and redress for Japanese Americans and others who were relocated and in turn during World War II. Um, but the bill passed um, and there was a comprehensive study. There needs to be data, comprehensive data that informs a process, informs a commission's work like this. The commission can look into the disparities in housing, the disparities in education, the disparities uh, in, in other uh, employment uh, in other sectors of our lives to determine what are the distinct recommendations for those specific um, harms that people are experiencing as a result of their rights being violated. Um, and, and luckily, reparations is well-defined in international human rights law that would be a great uh, a reference point for the commission, for anyone who's really looking to learn more about reparations, um, which is basically just a process to repair, a process to restore people back, individuals and in, uh, communities back to the conditions they were or better, um, because we know there's never been equity in, in this country. So, um, you know, restoring people back to the situation they were before a specific human rights violation. That includes, that could include all, a, a range of things. We have a, a, a roadmap um, within international human rights law that may be restitution, restoring the community back to its uh, original conditions, but also comp financial compensation from economically accessible damage. In addition to other rehabilitative services uh, psychological services, the trauma that has been um, intergenerationally passed down as a result of enslavement and segregation and other racialized violence, um, satisfaction measures, which include things like truth-telling measures, actually teaching this in our schools, maybe, you know, setting up... But what does that mean when you say truth-telling measures? Truth-telling measures as in, you know, maybe that's a public display, a memorial honoring mm. certain survivors and victims. You know what land you're standing on. Right. Like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where uh, the 1921 
uh, Tulsa race massacre occurred where a white mob uh, besieged the black affluent community there, burned it down in under 24 hours, killed up to 300 people. Um, In that space, they just erected a a permanent marker uh, to to let you know that that in the Greenwood District, this is what happened. I was Um, just there and I was really blown away how hard it was to find I was driving through Right. It was very hard. I mean, given the historic, I mean, it's it's a horrifying story. Um, we've covered on the show before, but I couldn't. I, it was very hard to find. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I didn't see it. I didn't see the. Yeah, absolutely, and and really, that needs to ha- be that needs to happen across cities across the U.S. Uh, there are uh, unfortunately a lot of race massacres in our history's past. But not just talking about race massacres, where lynchings have happened, where um, other uh, displacement, uh, mass displacement of Black communities have happened. We should be marking those places and letting people know this is what has happened here. But we should also be developing school curriculum that actually um, informs our you know, youngest and brightest of, of generations to to be armed with this information when they step out in the world, when they speak at their dinner table, when they go, um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, participate in social change measures, uh, that they're equipped with this kind of information because this is the world that we're living in. So interesting, Dreesen. Um, let's, let's put your article back up on screen so people can check it out in The Nation. Uh, I think I feel like we could do this for two hours. I'm I'm learning so much from you. Um, we'd love to have you back on. By the way, if you if you write something else uh, in the near future, in order to continue this conversation, especially after the election, uh, defunding the police is a reparations issue. The U the United States should take a long look at UN guidance, which they probably helped write uh, on police reform in post conflict countries. Treason, he thank you very much just for all the work that you're doing and for coming on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. All right, everybody, we will be back with our panel. Rep Rab and Arun Chowdhury are here. We're going to talk about the debate tonight, what to expect, like we can actually do that with Trump. But, you know, there's probably a lot to talk about and uh, some of the news that's happening today. So stick around and smash that like button. Smash it, smash it, smash it! Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, ugh, I dropped my bag that I have to do this thing where I'm promoting stuff. Um, we have bags now, and you can buy uh-huh. them. <laughs> you can buy them at thenomikishow.com. And we also have mugs, and I keep being told to promote this stuff, and I'm just not very good at it. So um, go buy like three. <laughs> <laughs> to make up for my lack of promotion. No, no, seriously. Um, and we also have stickers. So you can get those online right now at the nomikishow.com. Uh, and it'll make folks happy who keep yelling at me for not promoting them. I'm really excited. Uh, this is a great panel. We have Rep. Chris Rabb, known as Rep. Rabb. He represents the 200th District of Pennsylvania. And he's the author of Invisible Capital, How Unseen Forces Shape Entrepreneurial Activity. And my old friend, Arun Chowdhury, is here from Berlin. 
Berlin, I know you're in Germany. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, you've got the book Berlin I put behind the book you. Especially just to make sure. Uh, yeah. There you go. Arun was formerly the first official White House videographer under Obama and worked as creative director for Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. He focuses on political filmmaking. You're just also a master of like many different things. I I don't know what to put and in there. It's so fun because it's like a re 2016 reunion when you know we would talk in the Wendy's Triangle at whatever the Biscuit Factory Radio Studio. It's a little confusing, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I used to host a show um, on Sirius XM uh, five days a week, three hours a day, no staff, uh, nine to midnight. It was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and Iran would come on, especially when I was going down to DC. Um, yeah, back in the old days, and used to wear those those cat sneakers. Mm-hmm. Are you wearing them now? I asked you to. I am not wearing them now, even though you asked me to, because um, I don't, they are a very rare commodity now. It actually costs hundreds of dollars because Vans discontinued them to get to get the size uh, that you need, like online. It is a hoarder's market. It's a pandemic. <laughs> we all know it's happening. <laughs> we all know. All right, guys, so tonight we have this debate. Um, I really wanted to bring Iran on because he's like the master of messaging. And then Rep. Rab, you know, you are a politician. so <laughs> Public servant. Okay, I'm sorry. Public mm. servant. But but when you're on stage debating, you're a politician. So I'll just, <laughs> you know, this is, this, is, this is like a bizarro land right now. Um, I started off the show talking about comparing polls of 2016 to today and that Trump has just lost support and like that's an indicator no matter what excitement he thinks he has he's just actually continued to lose support across the board um and and Biden has gained support even if folks are reluctant like myself so we've got this setting the stage for tonight where um the moderator can now mute Trump basically um I'm I'm of the take, and and I'll throw it out there for you guys to agree or disagree or or give your take. I'm of the take that that's actually going to make Trump look a little bit better because he's got rules that are forced, and he can't just, like, walk across the stage and, like, punch Joe Biden. Maybe he could. I don't know. And when he does choose to interrupt, it will be a real choice that is sort of sanctioned, right? If you're like, this is the sacred space and everything else, do whatever the hell you want, I think we will see a lot of whatever the hell you want uh, happening. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference in terms of the back and forth. I also think it doesn't necessarily, you know, do Joe Biden a lot of help to sort of have the absolute spotlight focused on him in any given moment, because, you know, Trump is still the one who's commanding attention in the room. That's right. Yeah. What do you think, Rob? Uh, Rob? <laughs> Keep calling uh, it's, I think it's going to be really hard for Biden to lose this, <laughs> to mm-hmm. lose this debate. Um Trump is going to be Trump no matter what rules or, you know, infrastructure is created to corral his nuttiness. So I think um, if if Biden were to get under his skin, hypothetically, um, he's not going to be able to shut up and he's going to look like a, a raving idiot uh, with his mic turned off. And also, if if pressed, because, look, black women have pushed Biden's but- buttons in the journalistic sphere oh, and that... That is going to be a show in and of itself. The, the level of racist misogyny he is he is shown towards the press people in the press corps is tremendous, <laughs> to use his word. And um, um, no one can no one can corral him. And I think it'll make for good TV. But also for for those special people in the universe who are somehow still on the fence, uh, this this tonight might be the night that that. that 
that changes things. But no, this is not going to have a, a meaningful impact on the electorate or, or much of anything other than, um, you know, popcorn eating. Um, I, I want to just jump in there. I will say it will not have much. And, it, and like you say, it is laid out, you know, it, even if it's a wash, you know, it, it, it helps Biden. But debates are still debates. They're one of the few moments in our polarized society where you're not allowed to change your mind and your team is your team, where you're allowed to say, you know what, I watched them both and I changed my mind. And your buddy at the water cooler is like, oh, okay, you watched the debate. We have so few mm. moments like that. And so, I mean, so it is a high stakes moment for Trump because he does seem like he's in trouble. He does need to turn it around. Uh, but yeah, monumental task. And I think the worst part for Trump is that he's not having a good time running right now. And that was sort of, I thought some of the secret last time was like he really looked like he was enjoying himself. And I think that that is an important part of his persona that that's missing and that his base, you know, would love to see some more of. So let's see if he tries to force it tonight. Big I mean, it, is there, yeah, big smiles. Is there, um, any space for Trump. Like th my perspective on this is I don't think he has room at this point to to, for, to, to gain votes and it's all about that's why it's so much about suppressing votes right now. Yes. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And the suppression game is real here. Um as I always like to remind people, yeah, please I, do. I'm the tip yeah. of the sphere, I represent the bluest district out of all 203 in the most critical battleground state in the nation. So, and I'm in Philadelphia. Um, so it's the most important city in the world until November 3rd and perhaps a week after, yeah. because we may not be getting, um, the results a week after we got yeah. an optimist there. Yeah, I know that is, that is, well, here's the thing. Um, it's been record turnout in, uh, in Philadelphia, which matters because it, Hillary Clinton, who was not a, a very well-liked candidate, did got 84% of the vote in Philadelphia. That's tremendous. And, uh, but the voter turnout was not as high as people had hoped. The turnout now is significant with a candidate who people like at least incrementally better than Clinton, <laughs> right? I don't know how much more. I think perhaps some folks are more um, uh, um, excited about uh, his running mate and the historic nature of of, of her candidacy, mm. irrespective of, you know, policy issues that a lot of yeah, us, yeah. you know, um, uh, have serious gripes with. But so I think that the excitement is significantly higher and we have early voting for the first time right, in Pennsylvania right. history. It, our new law allows for up to 50 days before to, to vote. We've been voting about five weeks before, so not quite 50 because of court cases. And we have satellite election offices. Last week when I was on the show, I was in front of the first and only satellite election office in my district. And every day there are lines and it's open seven days a week. So what we're seeing in other states around early voting, which has been the, the, the norm, is new to Pennsylvania where it matters most. And for that reason, Philadelphia, I believe, will, um, will decide how the nation goes. I know that's a bold statement, but I believe it. If high voter turnout, and uh, Biden does at least as well as Hillary Clinton did, um, that is going to be uh, uh, prescient. Yeah, maybe some of the best tea leaves we'll get on election day too is seeing some of these like precincts where we know what the marks should be. Yes. Right. I remember in 2016, I've, I've talked about this before, uh, I was in Philadelphia, sent there to, to cover uh, 
attempted voter suppression tactics in line. Um, you know, you heard that, that Trump was sending out folks to, to intimidate voters. But what I saw was there were no lines. And that was a major concern. And then I asked uh, the poll workers, I said, am I missing something? And they're like, no, we have not had lines all day. And I think I was in your district, Chris. Really? Um, Rep Rep. I'm pretty sure. Um, or around your district, for sure. Um, and it was, I was, you know, that was not a great sign. But what you're saying right now, that there are lines every single day, I mean, that's on one day to vote. And if there are lines every single day, you know, God willing, right. Allah willing. Because we sure. opened up three weeks before, exactly 21 days before election day, and the lines were uh, Obama level, 2008 level in terms of the excitement and it's been it's been nonstop, and we we see what's happening in Harris County, Texas. We see what's happening uh, in Florida and other places where there's this pent up anxiety and excitement all mixed this bouillabaisse, so, you know, just you know, raring to be uh, fed on. And um, I think it will show on election day. So here's the challenge and the opportunity. The challenge, of course, is we're not going to have all the votes counted by the end of election day, right? Right. <laughs> not even close. And in Pennsylvania, we have a state Supreme Court ruling that was backed up by SCOTUS that said you have to accept mail-in ballots up to the Friday after if they're postmarked by Election Day or there's no postmark at all. So we can't even start to count whatever came in between Wednesday, Thursday and Friday until, you know, 12.01 Saturday in the wee hours. Mm. And I don't, like I don't that. think that's going to be a large number, though. I don't think it's going to be a large number, but we won't have 100% counted at the earliest Saturday morning. But here's the good news. The good news is we know how many people have applied for mail-in ballots, and we know the number of ballots that have been received in a timely fashion. So because we can start counting the votes at 7 a.m. on Election Day, 13 hours later when the polls close, the city commissioners in Philly can say, as of 8 p.m. November 3rd, the first 100,000 mail-in ballots, 90% went to Biden. And if we know that to be true, right. we know that all the remaining 400,000 ballots will be 90% for Biden, which means that the, the win number that will show for Trump in Pennsylvania within minutes and hours after the polls close, his margin has to be bigger than, you know, a quarter million. And if it's not, so we're going to know who's won early. We're gonna, so I want to put a map on screen. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to send it over to our team right now. Uh, there's a map. There, can we put that tweet up that there's a story that Sky News of all places. Um, so take, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But there's a, a data scientist, a professor, uh, Bella Stontic, says, based on rigorous data and, and analysis of millions of social media posts, social media posts, he believes U.S. President Donald Trump will win the U.S. election, despite national polls suggesting Joe Biden will be president. Dorsey, I'm going to slack you over a, um, a map really quick because it's part of the video that they put out. But let's just talk through this because I did some math a few weeks ago and I had this like crisis in my I was just this is before he was diagnosed with COVID. So let's just put this in, a, you know, in context. And I, I thought, oh, my God, if the map and Iran, you've done these kinds of things before, like if the map, if if, if Biden doesn't win, see if I have this right. If Biden doesn't win um, all of the Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Florida, 
or Arizona and New Hampshire. Because this is the kind of electoral game you have to play. It's either he takes all the Rust Belt in Florida or all the Rust Belt in Arizona and New Hampshire. If he doesn't do that, he doesn't win. So let's let's put the map. Oh, we're going to hold for the map. But Arun, I mean, like, how, I mean, this is, there's this feeling like in 2016. You and I were talking about this in 2016. We thought Hillary, we didn't, you know, we were both Team Bernie. All of us were Team Bernie. Um, I mean, what do you think the potential is that Trump could still pull this through? It's little things, you know, add up to a lot in the kooky system we have that, like, you know, imperils rural counties against urban counties, et cetera. Like, so it doesn't take a lot to be wrong before things happen. And even, you know, when you have a 10% chance of winning, if there was a 10% chance of winning game in Vegas, the lines would be longer than the voting lines in Philadelphia just to play the game. So, you know, you can't count that out. But the thing that I think is really deadly is, you know, when we see all of these extra registrations and turnout is Democrats are traditionally focused on turning out Democrats and not really appealing to non-voters and sort of one of Trump's Mm. specialties appealing to non-voters. And I feel like a really big turnout is a really good sign for the Democrats and a tremendous turnout, again, to steal Donald Trump's word, is maybe good for Donald Trump. And it, I think it's sometimes hard to see, except in some of these, you know, more spectacular numbers, like when Dave Wasserman the other day showed the registration of Republicans in Florida, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. It's hard to see some of these things. So if there's a nice long line in Philadelphia, that's fantastic. But if there's a moderate line in right. every little county in Pennsylvania, I couldn't tell you how many there are. There are many. Uh, there's yeah, 67 exactly. counties in Pennsylvania. 67 counties. But there's, there, there's only like five that have any real population you know most of these are sparse rural counties but um here's the other thing he only this is really important he only won pennsylvania by forty-four thousand votes out of five million wow for those of us who are um uh, philadelphians we have borne the the weight of that of that margin for four years. So this restless energy is coming out and we're trying to make up for what happened, that that shortfall by 44,000. Yeah. So will the, the Trump base come out? Absolutely. But the Trump base was energized in, in 2016. So I don't know how much more energized they will be. And let's remember too, that some Trump voters thought he represented real change. They didn't know that he was a con. They didn't know that he was all these other things. And we can say, well, they should have, but they didn't. Those folks are not likely to vote for him again. Now, they may not vote for Biden. They may stay at home. But the excitement among his core base, it probably hasn't gone up, but incrementally. And all the other people who did vote for him, who aren't part of his core base, are not likely to vote for him. So I don't think he's going to get much return out. Even at his highest in 2016, right, we're still just starting to scratch the surface of that 40% of Americans who do not participate in the electoral process. Right. And to them, Donald Trump still does not represent a, a series of failed promises. You know, not getting out of Afghanistan, I think, is actually something that's very disappointing to, like, some of the folks, you know, uh, uh, who we normally think of as conservative, but who were Obama, people who switched to, to Trump. I, I think all of that's very important. But the message proved them wrong. Right. Who? Everyone. Prove them all wrong. Prove them wrong. 
Uh, I think that still resonates. I think that still is what Donald Trump is bringing to the table. And I think if he can kind of channel some of that tonight rather than this kind of grudge or I did these great things and the tax cuts were beautiful because it's not a laundry list of promises kept because as you said, that dog ain't gonna hunt. Like those 41,000, like that margin just disappears. But and, if it is- And speaking of mar margin though, you put up the, the map. You saw the map, good, yeah. So it had 260 for Biden. That, right. that has Pennsylvania going red. Exactly. You know, Pennsylvania's leaning blue. It was supposed to let be leaning blue for Clinton, and it didn't go that way. But the margin has consistently been higher than it has for Clinton. Number one, voter turnout is already higher. So we actually we have it's apples and oranges because we didn't have early voting four years ago. So we know it's not just optimism. It's we have four hundred thousand people requested mail-in ballots. There's seven hundred sixteen thousand people who voted. Um, total in Philadelphia in 2008. So, I can mean... Can you see how many, where those requested ballots are from? Yes, I can't, but the city commissioners can. They could release that information, I believe. I think they can do it by ward. Um, Interesting. Which would be great. So I, I can actually inquire. But if you just put P PA under blue, it's 271 Biden. Right. It puts them over the top. And, yeah. and I'm going to share that screen again. Without winning I, I, Ohio or Florida or North Carolina. Right. I want to share that screen one more time because, um, you know, two states that I've we've talked about a lot. and We're going to talk about Wisconsin tomorrow and the Rust Belt. Uh, but we've talked about Arizona a lot and, and Pennsylvania a lot. Um, not so much Florida. For, we'll get to that too next week. Well, Florida's but, Florida. Florida's Florida, exactly. We've heard of yeah. No, but we will. We're going to cover Florida too. But I think what what's interesting is I – Arizona um, – where I've worked, there's, um, you know, it, it is a blue state, but it is, in my opinion, far closer than Pennsylvania. Because, number one, mm -hmm. the, the, the two major cities, it, three including Flagstaff, you, I, I want to hear your perspective. Well, Phoenix is not a purely Democratic city. Phoenix and surrounding areas, Maricopa County. It is split, and it is very segregated in terms of, of why it's split. And the same thing with Tucson. You know, Tucson is progressive in the south. It's it's Gabby Giffords district in the north, which is a former district, which was a swing district. It's had a Republican, Martha McSally's district. It's gone back and forth, back and forth. So those are the two largest cities. And, and rural is absolutely conservative. Um, even with the Latino vote, it's still not anywhere near Pennsylvania, where the largest cities, which are... Are, are significant in size are way more democratic. I don't know, Ron, you're, you're, you don't agree, why? Um, I think maybe I was disagreeing with the wrong thing. I, I mean, I think, Arizo <laughs> I think Arizona is much less likely to flip, uh, to, to, to come democratic for, for Trump um, than, than Pennsylvania. Right. And, and the reason I think that is, is the lack of any kind of machine or, you know, down there. It's, we totally. are political creatures and we love it. And so we're so excited. Can't wait to vote, get my sticker and show it off. But most people, it's kind of a chore. They're not that excited about it. And the machine is what keeps people paddling until they actually get into the booth. Uh, you know, I think some of us were kind of like, why couldn't Philly squeeze out a couple more thousand in 2016? You That's know? all like, we think. It's supposed that is, to be a literally machine. Like, you know, the machine uh, was asleep. <laughs> and so yeah. when I see places like Texas, which I do think the Democratic Party of Texas, uh, where I lived, is, is very similar to that of Arizona. You yeah. do see a sort of, you know, anemic organization that has just not had the funding or the, or the, the people power for decades just to get butts through the door.
Yes. Um, can you guys, are you guys cool with sticking around uh, for some extra content for our, our Patreon? I know it's late in Berlin, but okay. The kids aren't like screaming at you. <laughs> All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do some quick shout-outs to everybody in the chat. Uh, I know Harvey K., who's been in the chat, Professor Harvey K., has talked about how he is, we, we talked about the Gravel Institute at the top, um, countering the Prager University. Uh, They're killing it. Oh, my God. But Prager is, we talked about this at the top of the show, they're now, there they're are teachers getting away with teaching Prager University, whatever their institution, content, propaganda, to history students in public schools. So Gravel is, is trying to counter that online, and it's brilliant. Um, but I guess Professor Harvey K. will be doing uh, three videos for Gravel. And uh, who else are we doing shout-outs? And Professor Harvey K. is also arguing over the term Rust Belt. We will have him on to discuss that. Uh, thank you to MIDI Doctors for working the algorithms. And big thank you to our moderators, Bob, Billy, and Chokin for all of your help. Uh, do we have any more? I think that's pretty much it for now. If not, we will get to you tomorrow, I promise. We're going to wrap up this show on YouTube right now. We're going to move over to Patreon. If you're not a patron, this is the time. Help us build the show. This is how we get amazing content. This is how our technology gets better. I want a new camera. I just want to like throw that out there. So I'm trying to, to raise the money to get a new camera that gives us a little bit more depth of field. I am really far from this, yet it looks like it's right here. So <laughs> if you become a patron... Patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Uh, it just helps this whole system. So join us on there. And we will see you tomorrow for Fem Friday. We have an amazing show. We are going to talk about the Rust Belt and the depressed boat tomorrow on Fem Friday. See you then.